You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Well, I want to start by talking about the importance of being shrewd in a world that has been poisoned by wickedness. And I know that that sounds like super dramatic to say that the world has been poisoned by wickedness, but I want you to listen to Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6. It says, The earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they have transgressed teachings, overstepped decrees, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse has consumed the earth. So the point of that text is that the world is not as God intended. And I think that's something that we all can resonate with and know. Even if we may not even necessarily have a relationship with God, I think that we know that that there is something that is fundamentally broken in this world. And the Bible would tell us that God that sin has poisoned what God created. And so where God intended something that was perfectly beautiful, there is now immense brokenness. And because of this, we have to learn to live shrewdly in this world. Now, I wonder what comes to mind for you when you hear the word shrewd. Because I used to hear that word, and I used to think of something closer to conniving. And so I heard the word shrewd, and I imagined this like master manipulator who uses deceit to deceive in order to achieve their own goals. Uh, And so think about maybe a character like the White Witch in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She uses cunning and deceit to maintain her control over Narnia. She ensnares this young boy, Edmund, with promises of power, manipulating him against his siblings. And that's what I used to picture when I heard the word shrewd. But, you know, in reality, the word shrewd just describes someone who is wise. It describes someone who is clever or astute, particularly in practical matters. And so a shrewd person is someone who is perceptive and able to make prudent judgments. Shrewdness is often associated with a very high level of practical intelligence and the ability to navigate often complex situations effectively. And the truth is, it is essential that we learn to live shrewdly because we exist in a complex world that, again, the scriptures would tell us and our experience would confirm has been poisoned by wickedness. Now, the opposite of being shrewd is being naive. Now, we also have countless stories warning us of the dangers of being naive. One recent example is the movie Wonka, which our family saw at Christmas time. If you didn't see it, so great. And Timothy Chalamet is so handsome. That's all I'm going to say about that, okay? But the story begins with this young Willy Wonka quickly losing his limited savings, largely due to the fact that he is utterly naive about how the world works. And then just moments later, he is duped into this deceptive contract at a boarding house because he can't read the fine print leading to what should have been 27 years of forced labor. Now, of course, it's a movie, so it all works out for him in the end, but it's also meant to be a cautionary tale about the dangers of being naive in a broken world. See, this is why Jesus looked at his early disciples in Matthew 10, 16 and said, look, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. 
Jesus was saying to them, this world that you live in, and he would say the same thing to us today, the world you live in is, has, is filled with dangers. And so he says, I'm, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, and then listen to how he finishes. He says, therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, serpents in that culture were widely held to be very clever animals. And so Jesus is saying that we need to be fully aware of the wickedness that's present in the world so that we can carefully position ourselves to flourish in the midst of an almost endless number of systems and ideologies and worldviews that actively seek to sabotage us. And so if we are going to flourish in a world that's filled with wickedness, we have to learn how to be shrewd. And in so many ways, this is the very reason that God gives us the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, like Ecclesiastes, like Proverbs. It's so that we can learn to flourish in a fallen world. And to do so means facing some pretty uncomfortable truths about ourselves and some pretty uncomfortable truths about the world that we live in. And this is the entire goal of the text that we're going to look at today. And so if you have a Bible or an app that you want to read on, open up again to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, So we're going to be starting in chapter 3, verse 16. And I want to call this message, Enjoying the Quiet Life in a Wicked World. Enjoying the Quiet Life in a Wicked World. Now this morning, we're going to look at three examples that the teacher of Ecclesiastes gives us of objective wickedness present in this world. So he's going to observe this, and then he's going to make a practical conclusion uh, at the end as a result of everything that he acknowledges in this world. And he's going to start by talking about this, the evil of injustice. The evil of injustice. So look with me at chapter 3, verse 16. He starts like this. He says, I also observed under the sun. There is wickedness at the place of judgment. And there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of an animal of animals go downwards to the earth. I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? So the teacher here invites us into his own inner dialogue, which is kind of what he does throughout this entire book. So two times right here, we've just read that he says, I said to myself. And the first time, he refers to the presence of corruption in the very places that are meant for justice. So he makes two references here that you might have noticed. The place of judgment and the place of righteousness are both references to a specific place that would have been within the city gates where the elders would gather together and they would hear legal matters. So it was the closest thing to their court system. And so the teacher observes that not everything that was happening within their legal system was on the up and up. So the very place that was meant to be where wrongs were righted where things were fair, where injustice was brought to light, it actually became a place where even more injustice, 
injustice was taking place. And this is still a very real issue in our own culture. I was reading this week about uh, this undercover operation the FBI did in the 1980s called Operation Greylord. And they targeted judicial corruption in the Cook County court system in Chicago, right, right by where Tammy and I used to live. And throughout their investigation, they uncovered pervasive bribery, which if you've ever heard anything about Chicago, none of this will come as a surprise to you. <laughs> pervasive bribery, kickbacks, and case fixing. And in the end, 15 judges, 48 lawyers, and court personnel were all convicted. And so this investigation exposed a culture of injustice and corruption. Thankfully, it led to some reforms within the Cook County judicial system and enhanced some transparency and accountability, but still, the point is, there, it, it, it is a, it's a special kind of sick when the very place that is meant to serve justice is functioning in an unjust manner. Now, in verse 18, he observes that all living things experience the same fate. Humans, he says, have no real privilege over animals in the fact that all living things eventually die. And so as a result, he concludes that humans should enjoy what we can in life. Now, what I want you to remember in the midst of all of this is that the teacher is processing everything through the lens of life without God. Remember, every time he makes that statement uh, under the sun, it's a reference to life apart from God. And so we have to keep that front of mind when we are reading Ecclesiastes or we are going to walk away with the most depressing theology imaginable because of the things that he says here. Remember, this book does not espouse the full message of Scripture. It makes some very sobering observations about trying to find meaning in life apart from God, including this one here about death. But remember, this text doesn't tell the whole story of Scripture. In fact, in John 3.16, arguably the most famous passage in all of Christian Scripture, which if you watch the Super Bowl today, I can almost guarantee someone will be holding a poster with because that's, you have to have it at a football game. But remember, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, now listen to the contrast with what the teacher says, Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, in a sense, the teacher is right about death apart from God. He would be wrong to assume that that's the only option. The full story is that no matter how bleak our earthly experience is, the eternal trajectory of one's life with Jesus is exclusively hopeful. But in the here and now, our world is stained by the evil of injustice. Now next, he turns his sights to the evil of oppression. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died, more than the living who are still alive, but better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So now the teacher has his sights on those who are experiencing various expressions of oppression. 
And notice that he makes two observations about them. One is that there is no real earthly comfort for them. And then the second is that they have no power to fix their situation because the power resides with those who are doing the oppressing. Now, we would be foolish to forget the obvious example of this in our own country's history. Slavery subjected millions of Africans to brutal oppression. And enslaved individuals endured forced labor, violence, and family separations. Human beings were stripped of their basic rights. They faced dehumanizing conditions, contributing significantly to the economic development of our country. Our country was quite literally built on their backs. And as we all know, the abolitionist movement in the 19th century eventually led to the end of legal slavery, but its legacy continues in that it still impacts race relations. It still impacts societal disparities. And so the teacher observes the plight of the oppressed in situations like that and even far lesser situations and concludes it's better to be dead. It's better yet to not even be born than to find oneself in that kind of horrific situation. Now, what the teacher misses through the lens of life without God is the comfort that is afforded to us in our life with him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, the Apostle Paul, who if you don't know, was a man well acquainted with oppression, he wrote this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and, catch this part, the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflows to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So the Spirit of God, unlike what the teacher says, the Spirit of God offers us comfort in any and all of the suffering that we experience. So, practically speaking, if you find yourself right now in a season of some degree of suffering, the Spirit of God invites you to open yourself to his comforting presence. And our world is stained by the evil of oppression. And then finally, he highlights the evil of envy. The evil of envy. Look at verse 4. He says, I saw, all, I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. And then he gives us two proverbs here. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh, which is gross. And then in verse six, he says, better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. So this last observation is about the envy that drives so much ambition. Now, obviously, envy is not the only motivating factor for hard work, but it is certainly one factor in that a person sees what another has and longs for it and wants it and so overworks, overexerts in an attempt to gain what they do not have. Now, I would absolutely confess to the presence of this, especially in my earliest years of ministry. I saw the influence, and I saw the attention that those with large churches and large platforms had, and I wanted that. And some part of me will probably always want that. And it drove me at times to work harder 
And it's especially insidious in ministry because you can baptize your envy and you can baptize so much of your overwork in spirituality claiming that you're just doing it for the Lord. And so while the work might be noble, the motive is not. And the teacher concludes with this proverb explaining that in contrast to those who overwork are those who fold their arms and do nothing. And whether we always realize it or not, Scripture warns us of the dangers of laziness just as much as it does the dangers of overwork. For instance, Proverbs 10.4 says, idle hands make one poor. Proverbs 18.9 says, the one who is lazy in his work is brother to a vandal. Proverbs 19.24 says, this is my favorite one, the slacker buries his hand in the bowl and doesn't even bring it back to his mouth. That's the epitome of laziness. Think about that. When you pop your Doritos watching that game today and you're like, I just can't bring it back, okay? That's what he's describing. Now the teacher concludes that working at a reasonable pace and being content with less is better than both overwork and laziness. And the apostle Paul would say it like this. He said, seek to lead a quiet life to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.11. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's Hebrews 13.5. So this would be the big idea that the teacher here is driving us toward and that scripture certainly invites us to. It would say, I'd say it like this. There is wickedness in the world, so cultivate a quiet life. There is wickedness in the world, so cultivate a quiet life. If we are going to flourish in a world that is filled with wickedness, again, we have to learn to be shrewd to be wise, to make prudent decisions, to position ourselves to actually flourish. And one way the teacher is trying to help us do just that is encouraging us to live a quiet life of contentment rather than one that is constantly driven by the endless pursuit of more, which that has got to be one of the most American ideals that there are. We are driven by this desire for more. And so the question that I want to close with is, how can we nurture this very countercultural practice of contentment? It doesn't just happen, it has to be nurtured. How do we actually learn to nurture contentment in our lives? And so let me just close with five brief ideas, okay? The Spirit might lead you in a totally different direction, but just for the purpose of reflection, I'll give you five ideas for how we can actually go about cultivating and nurturing contentment in our lives. Here's the first one. Number one is cultivate daily gratitude. Cultivate daily gratitude. Now, if you read anything about mental health right now, I guarantee you one of the things that it's going to mention practically is the importance of practicing gratitude. And so for years, I've been writing down two or three things every day that I'm thankful for. But to be honest, oftentimes what I would do is I would write it down and then I would just move on with the day and it didn't really register with me in any sort of felt way. And so I've made an adjustment to this practice that's been really, really helpful and I would invite you to experiment with it as well. So here's what I would say. Write down every morning three things that you are grateful for. Three things. Then set a timer so that you can sit with each of those three things for one minute each. 
And rather than just write them down and then move on, try to actually, in that minute, experience the gratitude. To actually feel what it is that you're grateful for and why. Because gratitude is the antidote to discontent. So the first idea is to cultivate daily gratitude. The second one is to confess your envy. Confess your envy. The Bible, if you don't know, calls envy sin. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17, it is listed amongst one of the seven deadly sins. Sin, all sin, including envy, harms our souls. It poisons every part of our lives. That's what sin does. It destroys And so God, rather than harbor it, invites us to confess it to him. And so if you notice envy creeping in, and it is present in all of us, if you notice that there's something that you see, that you long for, that someone else has, or that exists somewhere, and you're like, I want that, (laughs) confess that to God. And so as you notice it, acknowledge it to him and ask him to just help you be grateful for what he has given you. So cultivate daily gratitude, confess your envy, and then thirdly, real practically, be the kind of person that celebrates others' successes. We suck at this as a culture. Read the comment section on any social media page, and you will just see people just trying to, we just like to, out of envy, just tear down people's successes. It's like it's so hard for us because of envy to just celebrate other people's successes. But what I would tell you is it's really hard to envy someone that you are busy celebrating. And you know who's awesome at this? Some of you are going to hate this because you're tired of hearing about her. Taylor Swift. She's, she's awesome. Now listen, I don't know if anybody watched the Grammys last week, but all joking aside, that woman was on her feet for three and a half straight hours singing every word to everyone else's songs and celebrating every single person who won an award, including those that beat her in her own category, for three and a half straight hours. So if you want to be more content, be a Taylor Swift in a world full of Kanye's, okay? (laughs) You'll just be so much happier. Next, cut off comparison, okay? Number four, Try to cut off comparison. Now, this can be really, really hard, but one practical way that we can cut, because that's where envy comes from. We look at what someone else has, and then we want that. And so the more that we can stop comparing what we have to what others have, the less envy will be present in our lives, and the more that we will nurture contentment. And so one practical way to do this is to, to try to more carefully curate your social media consumption or to limit the amount of scrolling that you do altogether. Because social media, so much of modern marketing, media in general, is just filled with people and companies trying to convince you that you need more. It's designed to make you discontent. You know, I literally woke up this morning to an email from Nordstrom, and the subject said, you deserve something new. And you know what I thought? I thought, I do deserve something new. That's what it's designed to do. And all, all of this breeds comparison. And so the more that we can cut that off, the better. So we have said, cultivate daily gratitude, confess your envy, celebrate other successes, cut off comparison. And then finally is consider, consider a consumption fast. Consider a consumption fast. Now, fasting as a spiritual practice 
is a deliberate and voluntary abstaining from food, drink, or certain activities for a specific period of time. And fasting can help us learn to be more grateful for and content with what we already have. So we don't have time to do a deep dive into the practicalities of fasting and a theology of fasting, but, but I would just tell you, this can be hugely helpful. So even if it's not like a food and drink fast, maybe you fast from social media. That, again, will help cut off some of the comparison. Maybe you designate a season of time where you're like, you know what, for X number of days, just I'm not going to do any non-essential shopping. I'm not going to spend all day long on Amazon looking at everything that I could have that I don't currently have. Consider a consumption fast. Now, here's my point in all of this. The quiet and content life to which we are invited, it does not just happen. Not in a world that's filled with wickedness. It has to be cultivated, and it has to be nurtured. And this is what God created us to experience. Quiet lives of contentment. Like, just really imagine the calm and the comfort that comes with being content, of not feeling like there's something else that I need to attain, there's something else I need to achieve, there's somewhere else that I need to be, but just being present in a moment and feeling like I have everything I need right now. That is the life that God created us to experience. That is the life that Jesus surrendered his life to make possible for us. And that is the life that the Holy Spirit stands waiting to help us nurture. And so let's learn to cultivate a quiet and content life together. Will you pray with me? Why don't we bow our heads? Father, so often our hearts and our minds and our bodies are so restless. There's just this unrelenting drive inside of us for more. And ultimately, Lord, that's because you designed us to be satisfied and content with your presence. And because we don't experience that to the degree that you designed us, we go looking to try to satiate this drive for more in other places. And so ultimately, Lord, what we need more of is you. We need more awareness of your presence with us. We need more experience with your love, with your comfort with your righteousness, with your goodness, with your joy, with your peace. And Lord, all of that happens as we learn to nurture this quiet life. And Lord, you know, you have placed us in a culture that encourages us to live big, loud, noisy lives. But that isn't what you call us to. You call us to the quiet life of contentment. And so we ask, Lord, that you would teach us more and more how we might experience that. And so, Lord, whether it's any of these ideas that we've talked about here today or something else more tailored specifically to us as individuals, I just pray that you would give us a sense of how how you're inviting us right now to cultivate more contentment 
with what we have. Lord, there is so much wickedness around us. There is injustice. There is oppression. There is envy. And Lord, we just need and long for these quiet lives of contentment. So I pray that you would help us move toward contentment together. In Jesus' name. I want you to take just a moment